Hello, and welcome to Wicked Wednesdays, your weekly podcast on sex and sexuality, with an emphasis on BDSM kink and poly relationships. I'm your host, Wicked Fellow, and this week we have an interview with a lawyer who specializes in sex work, BDSM, kink, and how that intersects with the laws of the United States. A while ago, Katja and I did an episode on how the overturning of Roe v. Wade might impact the LGBTQ plus community and also the kink community. And this interview does touch on that, but it's more concerned in general with how the law views BDSM, how consent works between two people. Is it possible to have a contract between a dom and a sub, for example? And I think you'll find it very entertaining and educational, which is what this is. This is for entertainment and education. This is not legal advice, and it does not establish an attorney-client relationship. If you ever find yourself in some sort of legal difficulty involving kink or anything else involving the law, it's very important to get the counsel and advice of a lawyer, a licensed lawyer in your area. The gentleman that we spoke to, while a lawyer, he's not your lawyer. I'll read his bio for you. Mean Streak Mile Wide has been an attorney for 20 years with a practice that focuses on criminal law. He has represented clients in cases involving BDSM, sex work, and other matters related to sex. He has been published in academic journals on the topics of kink, sex work, and discrimination. And he's a member of our community, the kink community. Katja and he have known each other for quite some time. And it's very valuable to get this kind of information from someone who has a foot in both worlds, you know, the legal world, but also an active participant in the kink community. So I think you guys will learn a lot from this episode. I know that I learned a lot, and I came into this with a lot of assumptions about how consent works and about what two consenting adults can do and not run into legal difficulties. As always, I want to send a very special thank you to our Patreon followers. This episode is made possible by your support, as well as every episode that we make. If you would like to become a member of our Patreon, head over to our website at wickedfellow.com. The Patreon is there, our podcast is there, the YouTube channel, and of course all of our adult sites are there as well. And finally, before we get started, we recorded this interview over Zoom, so the sound quality is okay, it's not amazing, but I believe it's listenable. And while you may hear some lags and stutters, I think that the sound quality is good enough to get the information across. So without further ado, let's get into the interview, and I'll be back at the end to share some more thoughts and some follow-ups that I had from that interview. So, welcome to Wicked Wednesdays. I am very appreciative of your time. Katja's had nothing but good things to say about you. And in your intro, we talked about how you've been giving lectures about BDSM and the law at kink events. And hopefully this will get the message out to more people via the magic of podcasting, because not everybody gets the chance to go to these big kink events. Yeah, for sure. I think um, making this information accessible is important. I don't want to have a spoiler, but there's a bit of an advocacy edge to where all of this is going to eventually go. So it's important that people be educated and know what's going on. I get these questions all the time. And since I do not have a legal background, I'm not a lawyer. I'm always hesitant to give people any advice when it comes to how BDSM and the law intersect. When it comes to how to deal with my partner, no problem. But when people ask me, what is the legal definition of consent? Can I sign a contract with my dom? What are the legal ramifications of engaging in BDSM? Is there discriminatory practices that can be pushed against me from my work, for example? Do we have any legal protections, et cetera? So I hope that we'll get into some of those questions during this conversation. 
And of course, anything that you want to add to that that I don't bring up or know about, please do. I just want to chime in too. I'm really grateful you're here. We had the we've had one podcast episode right after the draft opinion was leaked in the abortion case, Mississippi, I think it was. And you know that was as close as I've ever gotten to talking about legal issues on the podcast because con law I feel comfortable with, <laughs> right? But anything having to do with really criminal work, that's not my area. And so I'm really, really happy to have you here. Thank you. This is actually, we're going to touch on con law. There's a lot of intersectionality between the constitutional legal stuff and criminal law. And uh, BDSM is uh, nothing if not intersectional. So absolutely. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a, I'm excited to have this conversation. So a basic question that I have and that a lot of my viewers have had is how does consent work in the law? What is the difference between my friends and I in our martial arts practicing assault and battery and going and getting a fist fight in Walmart? You know, what can you consent to? What are you not able to consent to? Sure. And I, and I think, unfortunately, most of the time when you ask a lawyer a, a straightforward question, you get maybe as a result of as an answer. And that's really unsatisfying on some level. But unfortunately, with this particular topic of BDSM and kink, it's often the answer is maybe. And that's really unsatisfying generally. And it's really problematic because as people who are really consent-minded and people who really want to operate in a very black and white way in terms of how we interact with our partners and making sure that there's very good communication and making sure there's clear boundaries. We want to apply that same rigidness to our legal risk, you know, and I think that's, and unfortunately we can't, and I'll kind of just delve into it. And which is to say that for the most part, BDSM and kink, even consensual fully consensual BDSM and kink is not protected behavior at this point on any level, certainly not in an affirmative way as codified by any sort of statutory or legal precedent. And and so far as it's also been, when it's been directly challenged, we've lost. There's a couple of kind of key legal principles here. And I do want to say at the outset that we're talking about kind of a general legal framework uh, and generalities about the law. This is not legal advice. This does not constitute legal advice. Anybody needing legal advice should seek a licensed attorney in their jurisdiction. This is a, obviously a worldwide podcast, and I am only an attorney in New York State. So this, this definitely does not uh, constitute legal advice for wherever you might be. Nevertheless, there are some overarching legal guidelines, if you will, certainly in a more uh, academic sense. And one of the most common is called the Model Penal Code. The Model Penal Code does actually, under 2.11, talk about consent. And it says, when conduct is charged to an offense because it causes or threatens bodily injury, consent to such conduct or to the infliction of such injury is a offense if, subsection A, the bodily injury consented to or threatened by the conduct is not serious, and the conduct of the injuries are reasonably foreseeable hazards to joint participants in a lawful athletic contest or competitive sport or other concerted activities not forbidden by law. So what they're saying here, right, there's no way that hockey or mixed martial arts or any, you know, combat sport is going to be violence free. You have to make it legal. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And unfortunately, there's two things in there that the courts have kind of routinely gotten caught up on. The first is serious injury. That's really come to bite us in the butt as terms of kink. The courts seem to find whatever we do serious, 
and whatever hockey players do, not serious, or boxers, or... And yet boxers, football players get killed routinely every year. Yeah, absolutely, right? And so so they, they tend to have a very different standard when looking at kink. And that's one of the real problems. So the short answer is, there is no necessarily a legal protection, even with consent. We are always running the risk of finding ourselves as a test case in a bad situation. And when the courts have kind of looked at this, it's important to first note that this has never gone to the Supreme Court. Not that I'm a particularly big fan of what the Supreme Court would do right now, but Mm -hmm. Kink has not fully reached the Supreme Court. But cases like People v. Samuels, which came out of California, granted it's fairly old, 1967, tried to rely on the kind of Lawrence v. Texas reasoning, right, which was the famous case around sexual freedom. And they tried to apply that. And the courts were like, no, you know, kinky people uh, don't deserve the same kind of protection. And that BDSM is not afforded some sort of fundamental freedom. Can you back up one second on that? So this case was in 67, but Lawrence v. Texas was like 2005, right? So you- Oh, no, I'm sorry. You're right. It, it was, uh, they were using the predecessor. It's that uh, they were using um, F.E. Fresby, Fresby, F-E-B-R-I-S-S-Y. It was earlier. Do you know if that um, has changed? Because just until very recently in the DSM, it was recently decided that kink is not an aberration or aberrant behavior, but is healthy behavior as long as it's not practiced to extremes. Do you think that that had something to do with it, whereas homosexuality was destigmatized in the DSM earlier? So was there a fundamental basis of saying, you know, according to the psychologists, people who are homosexual, they're fine, but people that engage in kink behavior are still crazy up until about, what, 10 years ago? It was fairly recent. Did that have anything to do with that ruling, do you know? Or is it still in the Wild West? No, I think think you're raising a great point, right? Which is that the law doesn't often direct social change, it reflects social change. So civil rights happened before Brown v. Board of Ed, right? Um, As you pointed out, uh, fight for gay liberation predated the legal right to same-sex marriage by decades, right? So we, we change people's hearts and minds first, and then the law slowly usually comes around. And I think you're right. I think that the fact that the DSM-5 uh, no longer reflects, you know, sadomasochism as a mental health, dis- sexual sadomasochism as a sexual health disorder shows that we're winning the argument, right? We're, win- we're changing people's hearts and minds. Eventually, I think we will win this. I think eventually kink will be as normalized as same-sex marriage, uh, you know, as interracial marriage, right? I mean, these were all taboos at one point. And, uh, and maybe again, unfortunately. Well, I think the current Supreme Court is a, a, not a accurate reflection of people's current views. I think it's a power grab and a relatively regressive, powerful minority that has a, a ruling that's currently ruling, but I don't think long-term um, they're going to be able to maintain this level of conservatism just because the, the country doesn't support it. But yeah, you're right. We're definitely in a, uh, you know, if it's two step forwards, one step back, this is definitely the one step back, right? In a big way. And I, and I don't mean to discredit that, but hopefully in 50 years, we'll look back on the last couple of years and maybe the next 10 years and say, okay, that was, that was bad, but we've moved forward from it. Uh, but getting back to just some of the cases, the cases that have come through, and I, I actually woefully misquoted one because I misread my notes. Um, the cases that have come through have all basically been against us. No courts have ever found a fundamental right to sexual freedom. 
uh, in the same way that they, we would want them to. Could you give me a little context? I'm really curious about what were the factual situations that were coming before the courts, just sure. broadly? I guess like one thing I'm curious about, you know, I can imagine, for example, professional domination, right? I can imagine them coming under, you know, for example, prostitution laws. And I can imagine BDSM kind of coming before courts that way. I can imagine it coming before courts if, you know, you have a scene go wrong and someone does get what we would actually consider seriously injured. So I'm just wondering, like, if th that was... Because, Un like, as you Unfortunately, I think know... the more frequent fear, anyway, is... Hey, do you like spanking? Oh, I love spanking. I spank you. The next day you have bruises and now the cops are involved right. because you either changed your mind or, you know, we got in a fight about something later on. And, you know, again, in a situation like that, I think there's no cover. I think there's nothing in the world that's going to prevent me from going down in that. Right. And that, you know, it's very yes. scary, but... Yeah, you know, almost all of the cases that I found, almost all the cases that I found were um, criminal, basically assault charges one after another. Yeah, there were assault charges where somebody tried to raise a consent argument and and it just failed. Yeah, I, I actually misspoke. It was the People v. Samuels case is one that often gets cited. Yeah. Um, the 1967 case where they basically found that people that consent is not a defense. And that got used a few different times. But they were almost always the, the fact patterns were almost I mean, they were they were somewhat different, but it was mostly two people who uh, engaged in some sort of consensual practice. And then the courts found that consent wasn't a defense, either because it didn't it rose to the level of serious physical injury or simply the uh, consent was simply is doesn't matter that you cannot consent to, to physical bodily harm. So some of the states that kind of had the mentality of the model penal code were like, well, is the injuries bad? And then they always found that they were bad. <laughs> the ones that don't follow the model penal code were saying, well, doesn't matter. Consent's not defense. And this idea that we're going to follow often the people would raise this issue of, you know, fundamental sexual freedom, kind of the Lawrence v. Texas arguments. And they failed pretty much across the board, which is, you know, which is a bit of an issue. Yeah, it really reminds me. So this idea of um, serious harm and, you know, finding hockey players injuries not to be serious, but kink players injuries to be serious. What it really reminds me of is the analog to the word voluntary when you're talking about the assumption of risk, right? So if it's a risk that we approve of, like getting on an airplane, then that risk is not considered to be voluntary, right? But if it's, right. but if it's you know, mountain climbing, even if statistically it might be a similar risk, we'll consider that to be not voluntary. Absolutely. That's exactly what's going on there. I should say also, there was one case in Rhode Island, and shout out to Rhode Island, my one-time home state, where um, the state v. Gasper, uh, which was 2009, where they actually seemingly overturned a, to overturn a conviction for consensual BDSM because they found it to be consensual. Um, they don't really go into it in great detail. It does seem to kind of follow the idea that uh, you can consent. So at least in one, in the smallest state in the country. And, and well into the 2000s. <laughs> yeah, and well into the 2000s, there is at least one ray of hope where the, case, the cases have kind of gone this way. But I think people are surprised to hear this, right? I mean, I think if we were kind of pull the lens back, right? And if we take out some of the, and we just kind of look at it from an overview, I think people are surprised to hear that consent isn't necessarily a ironclad legal defense to their behavior. I think people would be surprised to find that they don't have the fundamental freedoms that they think they have. I think in America, we tend to imagine that this is a very free, very 
liberal and libertarian on some levels country where you can do what you want. And, you know, as long as everybody's on board, it's, it's not an issue. And the reality is that that's not really true. And people have very little legal protection. And sometimes they get prosecuted. And when they do it, it tends to not go well for them as an overall proposition. I think people need to need to know that because I, it should impact how they interact. When they're talking to police, you know, they may want to talk to the police the same way you would talk you, you would if you were worried that you might be convicted of some other crime, right? Like use the fifth amendment. Yeah, yeah, the answer is don't. <laughs> Absolutely do not. They're not your friends. Exactly. And so I think a lot of people are surprised when they, they find that out. And I know that it, it obviously sounds very scary when it comes across as you have no legal protections, you really cannot consent to this thing. And I do understand that. I don't feel like the risk in a BDSM relationship is inherently greater than the risk in a vanilla relationship in the current climate we live in. Because again, if you and I hook up and things go south between us, there's really no difference in you saying, I did not consent to sex. Therefore, you know, versus I did not consent to get paddled. Therefore, I, the risk to me is the same. And it's going to be a he said, she said, or she said, she said, he said, he said situation. I don't think adding BDSM into it is inherently more risky with perhaps the exception of you might end up with stripes and bruises, which you may not with a, a sexual encounter purely. But what advice would you give people when they are entering into a consensual BDSM relationship with someone? Is it the same type of, you know, go slow, make sure you understand who you're getting ready to be intimate with? Because... Well, there is one difference. Um, another One other difference. Like you mentioned two things. Well, one thing, right? There's definitely the potential for physical evidence, marks, right? Bruising, those kinds of things. And, and that's, I think that's real. The other problem though, that comes up in these cases is that there's usually some sort of paper trail, except it's all digital now, right? Where people are texting back and forth about the consensual BDSM they want to have. And that works against you in a BDSM case, whereas that would work for you in a vanilla sex case. Wow. In a vanilla sex case, right? I say, oh, you're so hot. I, I want to have oral sex with you. And they say, great. I'd love to have oral sex with you. Well, no one's going to jail for having oral sex. If I say, I really want to single tail whip you. And they say, that's great. I want to single tail whip you. That's illegal. Whereas the other one is legal. And in those cases, a lot of those, the digital um, record that's created via text, email and stuff like that is definitely becomes weaponized. Um, by the government. So it's it can be a little bit more problematic, unfortunately. I stand corrected, unfortunately. I try to bring in a ray of sunshine <laughs> and you have rained upon it. It's, no, it's, it's really good. And I, I was completely unaware of that. I would think, again, I keep thinking in my mind as a common sense person might say that, oh no, I have plenty of record of us consenting to this, therefore everything is fine. And you're saying that no, the law actually looks at that as this is evidence of your crime. <laughs> yeah, uh, an exception to hearsay even. So it's admissible against you even as hearsay. It's not It's not good. So might this be a reason not to film one's <laughs> encounters? We'll, we'll get to there. Because yeah, this is interesting. It's a double-edged sword because, actually a triple-edged sword if such a thing exists. So on the one hand, having a record of consent is better than them saying it wasn't consensual, right? So on the one hand, having a record of consent is good especially if you live in a place that might follow the model penal code and you haven't crossed that threshold of serious physical injury. The second edge of that sort, as we said, is like it could be used against you as an admission. And then the third thing is, um, what did you say right before I jumped in? Oh, I said, well, you know, might that be a reason not to film your encounters? 
Oh, and then, so then the, the other part of filming is that once you start entering into the land of pornography, you have a whole nother set of rights that are completely First Amendment based that have nothing to do with this entire conversation. So amazingly, you can absolutely do consensual BDSM art in the form of filming it. Pornography, and certainly wherever the threshold between art and pornography, if you're on the other side of that line, you have incredible freedom under the First Amendment to make film, which is amazing, right? And, and somewhat ironic, but in the twisted legal world, it, it makes sense. Is this the same as if I go hire a prostitute, I'm breaking the law, but if I pay someone to make a pornographic film with me, that's completely legitimate, even though the act itself is exactly the same. Exactly. It's very analogous. That's a fantastic analogy. Yep. Oh, we'll always have to carry a camera. <laughs> I mean, I think, I guess the, the question I wonder though is like, it just seems to be that most pornography is going to rise to the level of obscenity and not be protected. But I guess you, so you really have to kind of target that exact sweet spot. Right. And, and maybe this is me being overly romantic, but I think a lot of BDSM is closer to art than most pornography is because a lot of it doesn't even involve sex. Yeah, so definitely I can see that with something like if you make a video doing Japanese rope bondage, you're going to have a much easier time than if you make a panel video. I'm glad that you asked that because I wanted to <laughs> add in to create more horror in our audience. If you're dealing with some, you know, a BDSM encounter gone wrong, someone changed their mind or bad feelings happened, you have possible assault and battery. You've restrained this person potentially against their will. Now you have kidnapping. Yeah, that's a big one, actually. And, right? and in yeah. New York, we call it unlawful imprisonment. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of dominoes that can fall from what would normally be a happy-go-lucky fun scene. I tied this person to the bed and spanked them. That sounds like nothing, except if all of a sudden they say, "I didn't want this to happen." Yeah, no, that's a real that's a real problem. Or again, if they say, "I wanted this to happen," but you know, you have a overly zealous prosecutor who doesn't want that to happen in their jurisdiction and on their watch in their town. And, and a lot of jurisdictions I'm imagining are not very kink and BDSM leather friendly. We're not in the Castro in San Francisco everywhere. It'd be very nice. Yeah, And you see that like in New York, I see almost no cases of consensual BDSM where everyone agrees, but some cop arrests the person and prosecutes it and the DA goes forward with the case, you know, where everybody was, it was consensual. And I usually do this talk with a NYPD sex crimes detective when we do it live. A kinky um, one? Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other kind? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. He is shout out, shout out to my, to the Irish gentleman on uh, Fat Life. My, we are two completely different personalities from totally different walks of the criminal justice system, but get along fantastically. He routinely says they simply don't have time. And this is where prosecutorial discretion comes in, right? DAs have wide discretion in what they do and don't prosecute. In New York, the DA is not going to waste their time prosecuting consensual BDSM. They just aren't. They just don't. They don't have time. They don't care. They actually don't even prosecute well, in Manhattan now, they don't prosecute any sex work, which is freaking amazing. So shout out to all of the amazing activists that made that a reality. But also they don't, you know, they haven't been prosecuting uh, pro-doms for a long time in New York. I mean, that just hasn't been on their radar. They simply don't have the inclination or the energy to do it. And that's for the best. Basically, every time a, a cop has showed up to a, a consensual sexual event, 
you know, in New York, as long as everybody's on board with the play, it's never really been an issue. Now, if somebody's not on board with, with it, it is an issue, obviously. You know, that's where a lot of my kink related cases have come from, where one party says that it wasn't consensual. There's a huge backlog of legitimate sexual assault cases that are going, you know, unnoticed and un, unresolved because of the, the huge number. It does seem like a, a shame and a waste of time to prosecute something that is against the law, perhaps, but not against the two people involved. They were perfectly consensual in the matter. Right. You know, in Spain, they have a wonderful legal system where unless somebody actually makes a complaint, like a person, the police don't get involved, which is kind of like true for sex. It's true for drugs. It's, you know, it's kind of a no, if no harm, no foul kind of overarching policy, which is very sensible. And, and again, we're not saying that there is no criminal activity in the kink community. There's, there unfortunately is. We're, we're not immune to it. We're, you know, we're part of the general population and the general population has this problem, you know, but we, I would like to see only, you know, BDSM gone wrong cases uh, be the ones that get prosecuted, right? Where someone's making a real allegation of a consent violation. Absolutely. I would like to think that because we talk about consent so openly, we talk about sexual safety so openly, we're much more forward about, have you been tested? What's going on? Checking your background. Like everybody, I exist in both worlds. I have a vanilla life and I have a kink life. And having that conversation with a vanilla date can be very awkward and uncomfortable. And, hey, I hate to ask this, but have you been tested? Whereas in a kink scenario, kink situation, it's just Dave or girl. You would have no problem asking somebody if they've been tested. You have no problem saying, do you want me to do this thing with you? And I wish that that was universal. Obviously, it's not. I have heard of and known of bad things happening in the kink world, but certainly not any more than in the vanilla world. And certainly, you know, I do believe that our focus on safety and consent adds to that and that we are more aware of. Yeah, and at least we've been aware for a lot longer, right? So I think that in mainstream culture, definitely moves are being made toward, you know, focus on consent and testing, but we've been worried about it for decades. <laughs> it's just always been a part of it. Yeah. The BDSM community has widely been considered the vanguard on the issue of consent. And, you know, that's great. Downside to that is because we're, not the downside, but the, the optics of that can be problematic because because we're so consent-minded, we do a very good job of outing consent violators and policing ourselves. And I think that you might think we have a, a bigger problem than the general population because when we have a problem, we address it, right? We're not the Catholic church that you know will spend several decades brushing everything under the rug, right? And so in some ways, I think you hear a lot about consent problems in the kink community, but you hear a lot about the consent problems in the kink community because the kink community wants to, you know, when something happens, we try to be loud about it. You know, I think that's good. Um, and yeah, we, but yeah, you're absolutely right. We are the vanguard of consent culture. We invented this and we had to, right? Because, you know, if something goes wrong on a vanilla date and somebody tries to kiss somebody that, that doesn't want to be kissed, it's problematic. If you, hit somebody with a single tail who doesn't want to be hit with a single tail it's more than just problematic <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's real problematic the next question i had and i think i might know the answer now is are there states that criminalize deviant sexual behavior and essentially you're saying that bdsm is frowned upon universally or are some states actually better for this aside from oh, for sure. so what's really interesting is that I haven't come across any state that goes out of its way to acknowledge BDSM exists and then ban it. 
right? Like unlike homophobic states that was tr- that were trying to go after homosexual behavior at one point, you know, they were really targeting. They never actually did that. They always rely on these assault cases. And they say, well, this isn't even sex. You know, this is analogous to assault. And this is an assault or a kidnapping or, you know, unlawful imprisonment. Or They already used statutes that were on the books. It makes it very unclear because you don't really know if you're in a state or even a town that has a prosecutor that's going to thump a Bible and come after you, or if you live in a pretty cool place that's nobody cares and this stuff is tolerated and or celebrated, right? Like, you know, like the Castro or the village in the city, you know, or, or these kinds of, you know, these communities where this stuff can be done pretty openly and pretty publicly. I think the interesting thing about that, right, is that if states or localities do start passing laws specifically targeting BDSM, that's just going to be a sign that we are spreading and becoming more visible because that's when actually laws will get put on the books. And just in deviant sexual behavior in general, so not just specifically you're not allowed to flog, but anything that, you know, the old sodomy laws that were struck down but could possibly gain new life again like zombies. I guess currently we have protections on that, but I'm curious if that is something that we need to be aware of, which states are going to have those come back into effect, much like abortion did. I mean, I'll throw it to the to the person with con law experience on this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the question would be like, so like sodomy law specifically. So I think, you know, as far as I'm aware, states don't really have BDSM laws on the books and they never really have. You know, as he said, it's, it's really been, um, if it's been prosecuted at all, it's been under assault sure. laws, that kind of thing. As far as sodomy laws specifically, I would suspect there probably are a lot of states that never officially went in and like took legislative act- action in their state to take the sodomy laws back off the books. It's just that once Lawrence v. Texas happened, they couldn't do anything with those laws. They couldn't prosecute under them anymore. In the state we live in, you know, a decision by the Supreme Court instantly yeah. made abortion problematic again. Again, I would love it if I didn't have to worry about Lawrence v. Texas being overturned or Burgerfeld or anything else. But I don't think we can count on that. I truly don't. I think anybody who read Thomas's concurrent opinion should be scared, of, you know, scared out of their minds. I think at this point, everybody should be imagining a world that we never even lived in unless you're super old. Right. Unless you're like, I, I can't even I don't even know the dates, but you would have to go back, you know, 80, 90 years to get things like contraception being right. out, the making the banning of contraception legal again. And you know, I mean, it's really Thomas's opinion, which said what I think a lot of the Supreme Court justices were thinking, but didn't have the guts to say, is that almost everything's back on the table. Which is just true. And, and we, we talked about that a lot more in depth on our episode that that we did right after the draft decision came out. But no, I absolutely think you're right. I think, you know, it is impossible to overturn Roe v. Wade, but assume that all of these other laws are safe that really stood on the legs of the reasoning, right? All of these things that had absolutely nothing to do with abortion, but had to do with other personal freedoms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's really problematic because I think that when you're talking about all, ultimately, a lot of this stuff kind of goes, harkens back to this 14th Amendment argument of personhood, what it is to be a free person, right? They said, okay, slavery is illegal, but what does it mean for that? It means that you have to have some sort of rights to be a person. And once 
the current Supreme Court didn't want to apply that to women's rights of, of bodily autonomy when it comes to abortion, there's no stopping where that where that can go. That can go anywhere. That can go to contraception. It can go to same-sex marriage. It can go to, it's, it's a nightmarish scenario of regressiveness, of which, by the way, there is a strong minority of uh, people, right? 15, 20, 30% of the population that is very in favor of this. Right. And they, with the radicalization of the Republican Party, that 30% is who picks the candidates. That 30% is who runs for office. Yeah, people need to be activists. They need to do all of the things that activists do, you know, get in the streets, run for local stuff, run for not local stuff, vote, you know, these things, you know, support candidates, um, change, you know, whatever activism is to you, it's it, the time is now. I mean, we have a very long history of trying to legislate morality, and I would love it if it was a 20% or 30% it feels like more. It feels like a good half of this country is more than happy to force their own views and beliefs and personal religion and moral ethics code on everybody and say that I believe this and it's one man and one woman and missionary position and anything else is against the law, including cohabitation of unmarried people, which is not something that you would think the law would care about, and yet it does. And so it is very rough because, as I said in our podcast that Kaz is talking about, the people on the liberal side, people like me, like you, like Katja, are more than happy to let our neighbors worship how they want, live with who they want, do whatever they want to do. We're very, that's the idea of being liberals. Like, you get to live your life however you want. But the other side of that, the opposition is, no, you should live the way that I think you should live. And I'm going to spend a lot of my time and my money an effort to make it so that you cannot live the way you want to. And so it seems like we're constantly losing ground because we want to be live and let live. We want to be chill and do your own thing, which is a passive standpoint. And the aggressive standpoint, the we want to take rights away, we want to force our moral code on you, is a very active thing. That's something that people can do. I can't facilitate you living the life you want to live. I can't do go out and do anything to make that possible for somebody else. But I can organize myself to try and take away something from other people. And it's just, it seems almost hopeless. And it's important to remember, right, that while we're not in the DSM-5 anymore, and while, for better or worse, Fifty Shades of Grey became a national <laughs> phenomenon. I hate to say it, but I think I think there's some sort of bad Twilight fan fiction actually really moved the needle on bringing the fact that it turns out a lot of people are into it. Oh, yeah. I saw Fuzzy Cuffs in Walmart. BDS, <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey branded fuzzy cuffs in Walmart in middle America. I mean, that's, that is moving the needle. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and there's a lot of critique of that for sure. But but I think that big strides being made and the needles changed and the demographics have shifted. There's no doubt that to a major chunk of this country, we're a bunch of weirdos that they don't understand and they don't want to understand and would love to see somewhere between burned at stakes and certainly outlawed, you know, and we have to be, we have to remember that when we want to engage in our own activities and two, when we decide to be passive about, you know, having a voice. 
So we need more kinky mayors, more city, kinky city council Absolutely. members, more just get out there and be active in the things. That I know, and, and of course we are disadvantaged, right? Because there is the stigma. So sure. you know that actually prevents people from wanting to seek office is because they don't want their skeletons aired. You know. And you know, again, this is the old hypocrisies. Of course, come to play is you find out that the most right, hard leaning, yeah. hard charging guys, anti-gay, are secretly gay and doing all that. You know. It would not surprise me if a lot of these people are very kinky in their own private life, but have no problem wagging the finger. I have no evidence of this. You just have to go survey some pro femdoms and you'll find out. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Talk to him in DC. That's all very, that's a big bummer, man. That's. Yeah. It's, um, unfortunately, it's, yeah, I'm not the tight, the bringer of good news. As long as you're the bringer of reality and the truth. A question I, and I get asked this all the time, um, you know, based on what we said so far, I think the audience knows the answer, but if Katya and I wanted to have a contract between us as a dominus sub, aside from making us feel good and something that works between us to establish the bonds of our relationship, I'm assuming that that contract is worth absolutely nothing to anybody outside this relationship, especially a legal system. Okay, so kind of amazing. You're not the first person to ask me this, and you're and I've actually been messaged on FetLife for like people trying to figure out how to do it and make it legally binding, which is um, so. This is this is definitely a question that's out there. It's you know, so I'm glad yeah, you're I, asking it. You're not the first uh, person. To ask. Um, so let me also say that um, besides the fact that it does clarify a lot of things and helps put everybody on the same page, it's also just hot. Um, and I think that <laughs> you didn't add that point, and it's it's I think personally super hot. <laughs> um, uh, maybe it's because it like intermingles my own, like my, my legal mind and my sexuality in a way that can only happen in this particular moment. But in any event, it's, while well, I'm going to tell you what you already know, which is it's completely not enforceable. I mean, <laughs> it's not enforceable even a little bit. And even if it was enforceable a little bit, the 14th amendment went out of its way to make that exact thing illegal. Right. You can't. 13th, 13th, 13th. 13th. Yeah. And fun fact about the 13th Amendment, it's the exception where a non-state actor can be sued for violating your constitutional rights. If one, if someone enslaves you, even if they're not a government actor, you can still actually sue them under the Constitution, something you can't do for the other constitutional provisions. Well, everybody knows that. <laughs> so, right. So, like, people went way out of their way to make this not legal. You know, which is good, but it also means that um, our little fantasy is going to have to stay a fantasy. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we can make contract between us. It helps us understand our relationship. This is something that the biggest point of advice I have when I'm talking about BDSM and getting into kink is that communication, especially that initial communication, expectations, boundaries, what I expect, what you expect, how our relationship is going to work and revisiting that throughout the time. And I think all that is wonderful. And, you know, writing that down and writing that down as this is our contract between the two of us is hot. It is very sexy. You get a gold foil stamp on that thing. And it's really, <laughs> it's the best, Blood. but you should not in any way expect that even that signed contract that says you are my servant and I can do whatever I want with you, that is not going to protect anybody in a court of law. That's not going to help. For sure. Um, but let me also throw this out there, which is that we live in an age of juricide where there used to be many different legal systems that overlapped. You had canon law, you had community laws and norms, and you had other things that were legally 
minded and had a certain amount of power over you, but that were not necessarily state sanctioned, right? There's definitely different forms of uh, influence and power and things that have weight and gravitas that aren't the state. And I think it's important to remember that the state isn't the only arbiter of what matters. So if two people make a contract and and it's important to them because they both recognize it as having value, it doesn't need to be sanctioned by the state to have value or to have importance or to have gravitas or to have meaning. And maybe the contract self-executes that if somebody breaks it, that that ends the relationship, you know, and that and that has meaning and that has value and that has weight, you know, in a way that just as important in some ways as a state agency or a state actor. So I just want to point out that like, you know, juricide is real and, you know, we've killed off all of these other forms of legal authority. And now we just have the government. And I don't think that's necessarily for the best. So make your contracts, you know, keep them, you know, maybe you have a small community of, you know, the old leather community used to kind of have this, right? Like there wasn't a state uh, sanction, but there might be a sanction anyways, like a sanctioning body. And even if that sanctioning body is just the two people and the relationship itself or the polycule or the, or, or whatever. Your local kink community. Yeah. I think that's cool. I think that's worth not forgetting. I want to be ordained as a kink minister <laughs> so that I can give blessing upon these contracts. <laughs> I'd wear the clerical collar too, which you think is very I funny. do think it's hot. I didn't actually know I had a priest thing until um, Fleabag. Fleabag, yeah. Ruined her. Have you seen that? Have you seen Fleabag? Yeah. <laughs> now, whenever she sees a clerical collar, her pants come off. It's, it's amazingly fast. <laughs> She cannot help. Did not grow up religious. Never met a priest in her life. Actually, that's probably true. I've met a lot of priests. <laughs> and this, we talked about this before, but I would bring in my experience was, should BDSM and kink be documented for mutual protection? How should tops protect themselves, bottoms protect themselves? So I run into this a bit of a problem because I do document all my kink encounters. And because I'm also a professional pornographer, of course, people that aren't into being in pornography are hesitant. Obviously, they're worried about that. I would never in a million years publish something that was private. That documentation up until this conversation, I considered for our mutual protection so that if anything went wrong, if there was ever a, I didn't consent to this discussion, I'd say, I have the tapes. If anybody did not want to be videotaped, that's perfectly fine, but that meant we did not play. I've had that exchange more than once where people would ask me, you know, do you videotape? Yes, I do. And if you're not comfortable with that, great, but we'll just be friends. Because up until this conversation, again, I thought that that was very strong protection against those kind of accusations. Let me also say, right, keeping with the theme of juricide, it's a strong defense against being a, considered a consent violator. Within the community. At least within the community, yeah. yeah. So when you get out of jail, you'll be able to play again. <laughs> right. Our, our community cares deeply about consent, and you know, for good reasons, right? Which is that we're ethical and that's the ethical way to be. And just because the law is wrong doesn't mean that we should stop holding ourselves to a standard of ethics that we think is important. But yeah, it's a double-edged sword, right? You're basically consenting potentially depending on what your the, your play involves, to something that may be illegal where you live. It may not be, but it may be, right? Depending on what laws they follow, what serious physical injury means to them, whether or not they follow the model penal code about um, serious physical injury, you know, who the DAs are, what's law enforcement like, what's the person like who's making the complaint. I mean, it, it gets real stuck in the weeds. And you're not 
worse off for having that in some ways too. So I, I would never tell people not to do that, right? Don't, you know, document consent. Don't try to get consent in writing. Don't, you know, or via text, you know, I, I don't, I think some of those things can be really important and really powerful. And in some cases they've, you know, like I said, that Rhode Island case, it turned the tide in that case. And there are situations where there's a blurry line between BDSM and sex, right? Some of my kinks would be recognized as, as sex and subsequently not considered physical harm, but to me are certainly kinks, and I and that would consent would be a, a full defense. So a matter of you know full affirmative defense in that situation, right? For example, uh, I think you know anal is wonderful and kinky and um, hot. You know that is something that like I think a, a non kinky judge might agree, think of as like just sex, even though to me it's far more than sex, right? It can connotate power exchange. It can connotate pain it can and sadism and masochism it can connotate degradation it can cause humiliation sensualism i mean pleasure all sorts of things that that would definitely be recognized by kinksters as kinky but not by the courts it, to them it would just look like sex i would be curious about the deterrent effect of the documentation just and again moving out of the legal realm and moving back into the real world if i go on a date with somebody and i know that our encounter was completely videotaped I feel like I would be much less likely to go cry wolf and say, this person did things to me that I didn't want them to do when they have video of me screaming, yes, daddy, yes, <laughs> right? I feel like personally, I would be loath to do that. I'm not saying that it's a defense or that it's gonna prevent me from saying that. But I guess, again, just in my mind, working as a rational person, if I have a videotape of somebody with me and it's obviously consensual, to me, that offers some protection against them saying, no, it wasn't consensual. I didn't want to do that when I have video of them clearly wanting to do that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's I think that's true for sure. Do you see the direction the Supreme Court is heading as being especially dangerous to our community, the kink community, LGBTQ and BDSM community? You were saying earlier that if we, we may look back in 50 years and laugh at this. 50 years is a long time. Supreme Court decisions tend to last a long time, as do their tenure. So I am super concerned that the court that is currently making some very questionable decisions will be the court we live with for the next 20 years. And that's a long time to wait for things to, to come up for air, I feel like. Oh, yeah. No, this is horrible. I don't I don't mean to I don't think I can overstate how brutal the switch in the Supreme Court has been and how, like you said, how long it will last. It will be a lifetime, hopefully not my lifetime, hopefully the lifetime of some um, really shitty um, judges who I hope have very poor. We would never <laughs> wish that. But you know, <laughs> you know. But no, there's every time I see a you know some sort of live footage of the justices, I'm you know I'm I'm looking for um, it's a death watch for me. You know, and there's certainly some of them that I'm you know that I know the world will be a better place when they move on. Who's the oldest now, Thomas? Thomas. Yeah. I mean, it'd be a shame if he retired. No, they never retire. They only retire horizontally. It's so bad. Briar Stevens. Briar did, yeah. yeah, but he was essentially just swapped out with someone, you know. Yeah, right. Thomas is seventy-four. Oh, he can, oh, he can be yeah, that, years. That's another problem, right? Which they might retire when retiring replaces them with someone who's like-minded, which would be really problematic. So we pack the court, say the hell with it, and then never lose another election because we know what would happen next.
Well, this has been this has been grim. Are there anything? I guess so. I would ask, and obviously, I understand that you're limited on what you can say. But having talked about what we've talked about, what would you advise to people that are practicing safe, sane, consensual kink? How much should they be worried about this kind of thing? Is this all about choosing the right partners? You know, what would you advise as someone that enjoys the kink community, so that we don't just all quit and take up knitting? Yeah. So. We're not going to do that because we really like this, right? And this is fundamental to who we are. And people don't quit their sexualities. Like, that's just not going to happen. And also, yeah, it's just not going to happen. I mean, people people who have been persecuted far worse than us still, you know, felt a need to express themselves sexually, often at the great risk, even death. So, so we have to figure out what we're going to do. And I think that your first instinct is correct, right? Make sure you have very engaging in play with people who are trusting and trustworthy and you build a relationship that steers away from any sort of legal involvement if you can. I think that's a great first piece of advice. I also think it's important to do things that are consensual. While it's a gray area whether or not consensual behavior is is legal, it's certainly not a gray area that violating somebody's consent uh, constitutes a crime. It does. You know, in almost every situation you're going to not only have done something unethical and wrong that will get you expelled from the community of people that you wish to date, but sure. you've now committed legal offenses as well and, um, and, and done something wrong and that you should live an ethical life. And I think that's important. I think as a community, we need to continue to stress consent. I think we need to stress consent even more than we have been. I think that these are important issues and they continue to come up. And until we're perfect, you know, we're not doing enough. So I think as a community, we can continue to raise this issue with each other. And remember that our community is constantly turning over. We have new people entering our community. We have people leaving, you know, we have our community grows and changes. And, you know, right now we're in a post-COVID era where there's going to start to be a lot of people who have had a lot of time on their hands to research and learn about this, but maybe haven't ever been to a play party, haven't ever been to a club, haven't ever been to an event, haven't ever been to a con. And it'd be easy for us to be like, oh, we did this 30 years ago. Well, we didn't do it 30 days ago and we didn't do it three hours ago. We have to continue to harp on that. I think that's really, really important. And so I think all of those things are are important. And I also think it's important to know and make everyone draws their risk assessments differently, right? Whether that's STIs, whether that's legal problems, et cetera, et cetera. People should know that the more extreme the play is, the harder look you're going to get from a court, right? If it's super light spanking and there's no bruising and maybe not even redness or swelling, that's the courts are going to look at that differently than they're going to look at somebody surgically stapling somebody's vagina shut, you know, um, or doing a scarification scene or something along those lines, right? I mean, there's, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't do either of those things, all right? I'm just saying you should be risk aware. And maybe you decide with the more extreme things to only do them with people that you feel you have a greater sense of trust with or are in a place where you, you know, community, a physical location where that type of behavior is less frowned upon. You know, that kind of thing. I'd be very curious to find out where the law intersects with places like body modification shops, not not just tattoo, but places that would do scarring or that would do ear piercing enlargement or ear removal, more extreme body modification that aren't licensed medical practitioners. There's got to be yeah. a very similar intersection there. 
Yeah, nobody's ever, I haven't, this isn't dispositive because I wasn't looking for it, but I haven't come across that at, at all. You know, whether or not anybody's ever gotten charged with assault or any of the same legal tools that they use against us. The ear piercing woman at Walmart, if you can't consent to this kind of thing, is that considered not harm or very little right, harm? Right, that's not serious harm. But again, it gets to the point we were making earlier where, you know, there are certain terms in the law that aren't really about the word they're using, right? And so serious harm, right? Well, you just punched a hole in her head, a child, right? In but a that's child's not head. a five-year-old. Right, right. But it's not serious because it's socially accepted. And something that might be medically equivalent is considered serious if we don't like if we not us, but it's don't, how you write the headline. You know. Right. 40-year-old yeah. man takes a needle and pushes it through child's ear. He's going to spend the rest of his life in jail, right? Nice old lady at Walmart that does it with a gun. Totally fine. Sure. I mean, imagine imagine me circumcising somebody in the middle of a club. Oh, my that God. That would seem very intense. But a baby who doesn't consent to it, who's doing it, you know, ig ignore the religious thing. Let's just say it's a, it's a non-religious Yeah, because lots of people get, because we have lots of people who aren't religious get circumcised. I mean, as babies. <laughs> right. That would be, that, I think that's a perfect example, right? One is, one is a totally sure. normal societally sanctioned event of a non-consenting part person versus a person who would be totally consenting. And turned on. Totally freaking out the normal. <laughs> you hang out with different people than I do. Oh yeah, trust me. I definitely know people I think would probably, probably do have that fantasy. <laughs> Although I have to say, that's something that I haven't actually seen at a party. Adult male circumcision? No, but to me, it sounds like something I could imagine seeing at a party. Can you circumcise another? That's the thing I was just thinking, is like that would come <laughs> The male subs who would want that would be so turned on by it, it would be really hard to actually circumcise them. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah. It's going to be the video clip. That this is not the conversation I was expecting. It's perfectly on point. It is hard for me. Again, I, I understand that the law does not always follow the rules of common sense. And that seems to be the problem is that things that seem like it would not be a big deal seems like it would be perfectly obvious. This person said it was okay. They had a little fun playtime. The law does not need to be involved here. I still don't feel like we're at the point where the Stasi is listening at walls for people having kinky sex and kicking down your door. And hopefully we'll never get there avoiding these interpersonal problems that could lead to a bad relationship outcome obviously it's very important being very careful if you're choosing to indulge in the more extreme kinks you know according to this conversation there's no hope for me <laughs> uh, they're gonna bury me under the jail but i also do want to say though that there's also because of this kind of this legal framework, there's entire communities that don't have kink events because nobody wants that. There's a chilling effect to these legal repercussions. There are entire states like Massachusetts that people don't have many open kink events yeah. in part because they fear the legal framework of their state. When yeah. maybe it hasn't been challenged, maybe it hasn't been tested, but it, you don't have to put somebody in jail to have the effect of scaring everybody to not want to test the waters. Go on. Oh, I was just going to say it to the point of what the point of what you were just saying with Massachusetts, one of our mutual friends, I know for a fact that she chose to live in Connecticut and not Massachusetts specifically because at least according to her understanding, you can't consent to um, assault essentially in Massachusetts. And so uh, at least for female pro-doms, they're really avoiding the state. I was curious, is there like public indecency stuff or is it just they're much more likely to get prosecuted? In that it's state? a liberal state, so I don't know. Apparently not that liberal. <laughs>
liberal state form kind of they were it was founded by puritans and they had a lot of what they called the blue laws for a long time so they didn't have tattoo parlors they didn't have beer on sundays they had some pretty strict some pretty why I lived in Massachusetts before, like some pretty wild, old, regressive laws. They're not really current. That's kind of faded over the last 20 years. But um, there's a hangover to this, right? There's There are communities that, you know, people don't want to have a big kink event, you know, in parts of this, you know, or a small kink event in parts of the open kink event in parts of this country, because I don't think that, I don't think they feel that they, they can necessarily do it without legal problems. And nobody wants those legal problems, right? Because those legal problems come with a whole host of social and societal problems too. Outstanding. I appreciate your time so much. I could easily keep this going. I have lots of things I want to ask about now. Thank you very much for being with us for this uplifting and invigorating conversation that I'm sure will not depress anybody about the current state of our legal system as it relates to kink. I want to say one more thing and maybe you could throw it in. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I want to end this conversation on a ray of hope. We are winning the culture war on this. We are changing people's hearts and minds. If you look at the demographics of kink, kink friendly and kink positive people, it's all skewed to the young people. So as people, as that population and new generations continue to go forward, the ones that think of us as evil or regressive or monstrous, they're fading out and new generations coming up have normalized this behavior. We've seen it taken out of the DSM, which is the first step in the legalization. And while the Supreme Court is garbage, we are moving in the right direction. So people should understand that things are not as good as we would like them to be, but if they keep struggling for sexual freedom, we will win this because ultimately there's a lot of kinky people out there and we're not doing any harm to anybody. Cool. Is much right, now we can stop it. Yeah, that was good. Thank you for that. All right. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to leave people in a positive. Yeah, no, I, I think that was a good. <laughs> okay. So that was our BDSM in the Law podcast, part two. This is something that we will hit more of. It's an interest of mine, of course, because this is the lifestyle that I lead. I know that a lot of the information in that podcast, it can be kind of scary. And I do want to set your mind at ease a little bit in that it's very unlikely that you're going to suffer any sort of legal consequence just for doing kink, just for playing BDSM in a safe, sane, consensual manner. All right, that's not what this is about. It is really good advice, like we gave in the podcast, to be very careful about who you play with. Make sure that you are playing within the rules that you've established for yourselves and that you're not, you know, being an active consent violator. People that do violate other people's consent, I have no pity for and I I don't see any problem with them being prosecuted under the law. And at least in the country we live in at the moment, people aren't being actively persecuted just for being kinky. So this was a podcast to give you some ideas on how the law sees kink and that we don't really have any protected status, which we didn't think we had necessarily. It is to give you some guidance on just how much you can consent to and how much that consent gives you shield in a legal sense. So as long as you have a good, healthy relationship with the person you're playing with, there shouldn't be any problems. The same sort of issues that we talked about in the podcast, you know, they, they certainly spill over into the vanilla realm, but we have this added element in that the kinky lifestyle that we lead isn't really favored by the law. It's kind of looked down on by the law. 
And it can come with some additional consequences that a regular vanilla relationship wouldn't have. So it's really good information to have. It's something to keep in mind. You know, I'm not trying to scare anybody off. I don't plan on changing my kinky lifestyle. I do make sure that the people I play with, I trust, and that I practice safe, sane, consensual kink. And I think that's about all you can do. There's going to be an element of risk in anything that we do. And like our lawyer friend said, you have to decide how much risk you're willing to incur to enjoy the activities you like to do. As always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to send those to me. And remember, consent is king. Take very good care of each other. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>